Okay, so we are live on Facebook. We're live on YouTube. We are good to go. So welcome, everybody, to another recording slash episode of the Stallone Podcast Network podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Ryan, from the Going the Distance, the Rocky Series podcast. That is my Sylvester Stallone connection to this Stallone Podcast Network of podcast hosts. And uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves and how you're connected? I'm Doug. Part two of the Holy Triumvirate of Stallone Podcasters. I'm one of the hosts of Rocky Minute, where we cover the Rocky movies one minute at a time. We are in pre-production for Rocky Three. We finished two full seasons. So there's, uh, what about, oh boy, I can't do math, 230-something episodes of content out there ready for you to binge. Awesome. And I'm uh, Craig Cohen, and... When we get around to it, I co-host the Slycast. We cover Stallone's career from his very first films all the way to his current films. And we're in the 90s right now, so we've still got a lot more content coming your way. And in the meantime, I enjoy sitting down with Doug and Ryan. I do want to hijack things for a little bit because I recently put out an episode of a show that I'm really proud of. As you guys know, I think Ryan and Doug at least know. I don't know if our listeners know too much, but I'm a big Ramones fan. They're my band. And I carry a torch for them, and I've really tried to keep the spirit of that band alive after the four original members have died. So recently, I had the opportunity to talk to their second bass player, C.J. Ramon, who just put out a new album called The Holy Spell. And I was able to interview him on the Rock and or Roll podcast. And it's about a 50-minute chat between me and C.J. where we talk about his new album, and we also talk about his time in the Ramones. It's a great discussion, and there's some great music I included in it as well. If you're at all interested in in hearing that interview, please check it out. Look for the Rock and or Roll podcast, or go to my Ramones page, which is ramonespinhead.blogspot.com, and there's a link to it there as well. It was a real honor to be able to sit down and chat with CJ, who is just probably one of the most legit dudes you can talk to. If you don't know CJ's story, I recommend looking back at it because uh the dude he talks to the talk and he walks the walk he's just a stand-up guy and he's out there keeping the ramones music alive and also doing a lot of really good work you know outside of the music industry as well so if you're at all interested check it out i I think it's a, a really good interview and it's an interview i'm really really proud of you don't get many bands that have seen the evolution of punk from like its infancy to like where it is today so I mean, I, I would commend you on on your dedication to the Ramones and and actually like being able to interview somebody that's in the band. You know what I mean? It's incredible because I'm sure that guy has stories that we can only dream of. Yeah, and and it's all there. He he got into a lot of detail. He answered any question I wanted to ask him, and he was very gracious with his time. And if you haven't heard a Ramones album, go out and buy "Leave Home" or "Rocket to Russia." can thank me later because those guys were where it's at. I slept on them for a very long time. I'm not going to claim to be mm-hmm. a lifelong Ramones fan. I discovered them after they were no longer a band, and I regret it because those dudes were the real deal. All right, cheers. Yeah, that's awesome. And thanks for the reminder too, Craig, because I remember seeing that in the news feed. I got, I've been so busy on the military course that I'm on right now that I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I would like to. I've, I'll listen to all your stuff. I even listen to your book club podcast. I've listened to everything, I listen to everything you guys do. <laughs> Awesome. And, and I've threatened to resurrect that book club podcast. And I don't know, Ryan, if we've talked off air about it. If you've got a book <laughs> that was turned into a movie that you want to talk about, let's, let's talk about it. Because 
That's one of my favorite shows. And it's, it's time consuming because you got to read a book. Watching a movie is hard enough. Sitting down and reading a two or a 300 page book is pretty hard. But I've listened personally to my Die Hard episode probably four times. It's another episode of my podcasting life that I'm very, very proud of. Big Screen Book Club. If you're looking for something to do, it's funny on Twitter. Every day I see a new thread from somebody and it's got to be a joke at this point, but like I'm looking for a new podcast to listen to. Like it just seems like it's a rib at this point, right? <laughs> With the millions of podcasts that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the well is deep. The well is deep. All right, guys. So let's get talking about Stallone. Today was a big day in Stallone news and Stallone world because he was at the Cannes Film Festival in France where he unveiled the 4K edition of First Blood and also some, I guess he did pictures and or some small video clips from the Rambo 5 Last Blood movie. Any thoughts first off on that part, uh, his uh, unveiling of the 4K First Blood? Are you guys going to get that when it comes out or... You know, I got the Blu-ray set whenever the last Rambo came out, I guess 10 years ago at this point. And for me, that's enough. I think it's a good transfer of First Blood. And I'm not going to claim to have eyes that are good enough for 4K. (laughs) (laughs) Grandpa. (laughs) Honestly, Rambo isn't my wheelhouse. I'm a a self-proclaimed Rocky fanatic, uh, which I've been pretty much my whole life. I've seen... The Rambo is a very, very small handful of times. So I don't know if this is shocking to any of our fans or viewers or anything, but I'm not a big Rambo guy. I'm sorry, Matt. <laughs> if anybody's heart this breaks, is probably his. You know, I'm probably not going to rush out to get it. Okay. I think I am going to get it. <laughs> I probably, maybe I like Rambo more than you guys, the character. Uh, I, I love Rocky in the sense, well, I'm doing a whole podcast dedicated to him. But close second for me, I've been a huge fan since I was a kid of the First Blood series and Rambo series. I saw parts two and three in the theaters. I remember seeing First Blood for the first time as a child and just like blown away by Stallone and his stunts and the, the falling on the cliffs and the trees and the sewing of his arm. I just loved all that stuff as a kid. It's, it was was right in my wheelhouse as a young kid and i'm looking forward to rambo 5 last blood so tonight we're gonna see the first image of uh, rambo the last blood uh the movie is not gonna be released before uh, september 30th september in the, 20 in the, in the u.s something like that uh what can you tell us about the movie what, what is it centered about <sighs> okay the quickly he came home at the end of the last film i think that was like what 10 11 years ago he returns home and, and says r rambo in the mailbox and that's it. So now we pick it up, and he's out in this storm, and it's a horrible storm. And they're trying to rescue people, and so on and so forth, and it's a flash flood. And finally, the storm is getting so bad, they're taking everyone off the hill, and you see this one guy going up there by horseback, and it's Rambo. And what he does is he volunteers to, to try to save people, because he's still dealing with survivor guilt, that he couldn't save all his friends of Vietnam. He has, so he has issues from PTSD, and that turns, and he, and he has problems. He's not that successful in that either. So he really, and he uh, has a hard time. He goes home, and he has this beautiful ranch, but he lives underground. He's dug miles of tunnels. This is how he, 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 he deals with his dilemma. He literally lives underground. He had the ranch, but he, he was a tunnel rat in Vietnam. There's something subterranean, the darkness, the stillness, the enclosure. So it's very 
odd. You know what I mean? It's, it's really cool. I like it. And he's got an adopted family there. His father has passed on. The housekeeper, who's probably 70 years old, uh, has a granddaughter. The mother has died. So Rambo sort of is the surrogate father. But he's very, very paranoid about anything ever happening to her. And she's a young girl. And she, wa- and she finds her father and she wants to go to Mexico. To st- and he was a horrible guy. And I beg her. No, she goes, okay, I won't. But she does. And bad things happen. And that's when he's been fighting with his PTSD because he can't, once he crosses the line outside his property, he feels as though, he goes, I can't control what's out there. I can't, it, it will control me. And sure enough, he goes out there and, and bad things happen. It, it's, it gets pretty, very, very heavy. Anyway, we love it. And it's, um, there's going to be some serious vengeance in this movie. Ooh. Oh. It's going to be in the fall. Uh- A lot of people are getting hurt in this film, boy. I can't wait for that trailer to drop because, boy, it's coming out September 20th, and so we should be seeing the trailer soon. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I got to tell you, Doug, I'm a, I'm a big Rambo fan. I, I probably had Rambo movies in my personal movie collection before I had Rocky movies in my personal collection. I've got a, a proposition for you. I don't know if you've ever read the book First Blood. I have. Never. Okay, but I don't know if you're into the idea of rereading it and possibly – doing a book-to-movie comparison We'd for Big to. Screen Book Club. We'd love mm. to. It's an easy read. It's a great... I mean, I don't mean as a education level. It's just a... It's a great, quick read. You go through that book very easily. It's a great... It's a great book by David Morell. It really is. And yeah. it's one of those cases where I know um, Morell has talked about how he thinks the, the movie's better than the book. And I'm not 100% sure I agree with him. I agree with the concept that Stallone made an adaptation of that book that was appropriate for the movies. Right. And that's kind of a different, different thing, but you know what? We'll get into that discussion. Uh, (laughs) If you're inviting me to podcast with you some more, I will 1000% read the book, rewatch the movie and prepare for a podcast with you. Absolutely. Did I say Doug before too? <laughs> I, I, no, I, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> I think it was an I'm open. Invi- I think it was a, uh, an open invitation to both of us. That's how I took it. Was. It. And as per usual, this show has become a shit show. Yes, we're going to try. Ah, we're, that's we're our get, brand. Yeah, it is our brand. This is a big deal, though. Stallone being on the world stage promoting one of his projects—it's a big deal because we live and breathe the world of sly every day, right? We've got family and friends that know we're sly guys. And, but this is headline news and this was on the global level. So anytime that a project from Stallone gets this kind of exposure, it's a good thing. It's ultimately good for the long-term health of his franchises. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. I mean, this made news on my Facebook feed, independent of our podcasts and on Twitter as well. So people are talking sly and the other thing that came up during this, uh, he had a kind of a question answer period and he brought up Cobra, of course, the movie, the cult favorite Cobra. And we won't get into that, but he did say here, ah, Cobra, you know, Cobra was one of those things where um, I go, what if Bruce Springsteen had a badge and a gun? It's like rock and roll meets drama. That's exactly what I thought. Like, let's put these two things together. Uh, I believe that uh, 
I should have, see, I, that should have been to me another uh, franchise because that character was really cool and I blew it. I screwed up in that. I guess my personal life got a little involved at that time, but that was, I, I, I thought it was really great because it's a different interpretation. We're actually going to try to do that uh, as a streaming TV series. Cable TV, I think that'd be really cool to bring out the zombie squad. Of course, I'm long gone, but the idea is, is, is really good. But yeah, thanks for bringing that up, pal. Okay, so, so here's what I want to say about this. Please. You guys know that I'm probably one of the top five Cobra fans that are watching this broadcast right now. Probably. <laughs> I liked Cobra more than I liked Rocky and Rambo for a lot of years. Wow. But I got to say, does anybody watch Cobra and say, wow, you know what? The, the Cobra character, I don't really need so much. But you know what? I want to learn more about that zombie squad. Apparently, Sly thinks so. You know what the problem is? Cobra Kai has created this environment where people think they can dust off any 30-year-old property, put it on as a streaming show, and start counting the money. And you know what? Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Uh, but Sly at least made it clear that him as a character as Cobra Eddie will not be in the streaming team. It, it might be in the universe of the Cobra universe, but he will not be in it. <laughs> I'd rather oh, see a ahead. show about the people running that grocery store that got robbed at the beginning. <laughs> We're all breaking Matt's heart tonight, by the way. <laughs> well, I love you, Matt, but it ain't going to happen the way you're talking. There is no Cobra 2. Here is something that I found the most, especially as being the Rocky podcast, series podcast, and fanatic that we are. He says here, and I'm surprised, he goes... So he directed his movie, he did, he did his thing, and uh, it worked, second one. And I think, but that's, that's it for me on that. You're not coming back on the... No. Uh, on the I would do, I have a great idea. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I have a great idea for Rocky. Yeah. He, Which it, is? It, it has, well, yeah. It, it, it's you're it's not just a, you and I, you can tell me. I'm just <laughs> telling you. You know, he, he finds this this fellow here who's in the country illegally and everything, and he, and he takes, it's, it becomes a whole thing. Yeah, it becomes really phenomenal, really different. Donald Trump's favorite movie. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, it just, you go, how do you, because the hardest thing is like, you you've lost, it's like the magician. You see how he does the trick, so you're not impressed anymore. Well, same thing with Rocky. You've seen everything. You go, all right, what could be different? That could be different. When you take him and literally throw him out of the country and he's in another world, it, it could work. Yeah, but I ain't going to do it, but it would work. Is Avi, is, is Avi Alpini on that? I don't know, man. It's just... Avi, please. <laughs> no, it's, he's not doing... He has no immediate plans to continue with Cree, which I thought was great because he ended Cree 2 perfectly, the character of Rocky. But he goes on to say, now it's just an idea, he says, but I have a great idea for Rocky. He says he finds this fella in the country illegally. So he's saying that Rocky finds a person in the USA illegally, and it becomes a whole thing. And he says, it's like the magician who lost his tricks. You've seen everything, but what can be different? Throw him out of the country. He's in another world. What's your thoughts on this? What's Sly saying here? What's going on here? And, and is this really, is he serious? In every Rocky movie, every movie that was titled Rocky, we've seen Rocky fight. And I thought that was what defined Rocky, right? I mean, 
Creed was a spinoff for all intents and purposes, and he trained Adonis Creed, which is, that's fine, okay? It wasn't a Rocky movie. But now we're bringing it back to Rocky, and it's not about Rocky now. It's about another fighter. It's a little confusing. I don't know. Like, is he holding on to the franchise? Is he holding on to Rocky too tight because maybe he sees it's for the first time in 40-something years, like it's ending, it's over for him? For the character? I don't know. I don't know. I said it could work on Facebook, but I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> Here's the thing about Stallone over his 40 plus year career. He's really good at pitching ideas or thinking out loud before really having anything in place. You remember that after Rambo came out, he talked about like Rambo versus a genetically mutated monster, which never happened. And we can probably go back through history and go through all the times that Stallone threw something against the wall to see if it would stick. And to me, this really seems like one of those cases where I hate to talk about the law of diminishing returns, but I think when you were able to have lightning strike twice with Rocky Balboa as a comeback for Rocky and then the Creed franchise, I just think that you don't go to the well too many times and it might be Doug, like you said, kind of an example of, you know, not wanting to let it go or the athlete who can never really retire because they just enjoy doing what they're doing so much. So mm -hmm. it almost maybe even feels like maybe this is just alone keeping the idea of Rocky alive, even if he doesn't really intend to make this story. It's also like kind of the curse of the writer, right? Even though he might not be um, actually writing, the wheels are always turning. And now, you know, being in front of a forum where he can actually vocalize some things, he's like, hey, here's something I've been working on. I've been spitballing. Like if, if you're a writer and you're constantly, your wheels are spinning, it's probably better to keep that in a notebook somewhere. So once you put that out there, now everybody's talking about it. Yep. And now it's either shit or get off the pot because you either make the movie, people are going to talk about it, or you don't make the movie and people are going to be like, what the hell was that thing Stallone was talking about a couple years back? Rocky seven. Now I'm afraid that the discussion is never going to end. Yeah. That's an excellent point, Doug. We'll find out. So now that we're kind of talked about the news of Sly, are you guys ready to talk about cliffhanger? Yeah, but Ryan, I just really want to say that I hope this discussion goes in the opposite direction of where I think it's going. And <laughs> I just on. really hope you like this one. <laughs> Because it really feels lately like you don't like any Sly movies. <laughs> I, and this one will break my heart. Defend yourself, Ryan. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to get into it. Before we start talking about Cliffhanger, I just want to give a shout-out to all of the Slycast listeners who think that Doug and I have taken over Slycast. We just <laughs> let, me just, let me reiterate something here. Myself, Ryan, I have my own podcast. Doug has his own podcast. Craig has his own podcast. Together, three podcast hosts have come together to make the Stallone Podcast Network. That's all this is. So all this episode is going to be on all three networks. So for those who hate my style, don't blame Craig. Just blame me. But don't stop listening to Craig's Slidecast because of me. He'll come out with other shows that don't have me. Well, even some of them will have me. So maybe he'll just hate me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the next episode that goes up will be you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
but we love each other. That's all that matters, right? So with yeah. that being said, let's get let's get into it. Doug, you got a bit of a we're gonna try something new here, folks. This is like our seventh film mm-hmm. that we've reviewed, or eighth film. We're gonna do a synopsis first because we always jump all over the place. So Doug, you're gonna mm-hmm. lead the audience in the synopsis of Cliffhanger for those who haven't seen it in a long time and or for those who uh, haven't seen it, they can somehow follow Never our discussion. It. Okay. Yeah, we we jump all over the place, and I kind of want to just lay the movie out so uh, everybody understands the beginning right through the end. It's quick. I'm not getting into detail. But before I even start that, this here in America is Memorial Day weekend, and we honor all military personnel who have fought and died for the country. I mean, it's an American holiday, but, you know, this goes out to all military veterans and active personnel all around the world. So I want to raise a glass to everybody. Cheers, and thank you for your service. Thank you, Doug. And uh, right now, I'm actually that was awesome, Doug. I'm actually in a military room right. right now, a military base. I'm uh, in training right now to be a uh, basic training or boot camp instructor. So I'll be yelling at recruits in about three weeks. Hey, fix those boots, <laughs> you maggot! You know, so that'll be me. And then you'll say, "I'm sorry." Yeah. <laughs> Afterwards. No, we don't apologize. Not in the military. You'll yell at them and then say, I'm sorry. We are softer than we used to be, even when I went through 16 years ago. But uh, anyway, thanks, uh, Doug. I appreciate that. So thank you. Absolutely. 100%. All right. Here we go. Uh, We got Ranger Gabe Walker, who's an experienced mountain climber, and his girlfriend, Jesse, are dispatched to rescue their friend, Hal, and his girlfriend, Sarah, after Hal suffered a knee injury. They're mountain climbers, right? So they're stranded on a peak in the Colorado Rockies. And as they go to rescue Sarah, part of her harness breaks over this canyon. And uh, Gabe is able to try to save her, but her glove slips and uh, she ends up falling to her death. Hal, who is Sarah's girlfriend, blames Gabe for Sarah's death. And Gabe is overcome with guilt and he takes an extended leave from the Rangers. So we cut to about eight months later. Gabe returns to the Rangers station to gather his remaining possessions and to persuade his girlfriend, Jesse, to leave with him. Meanwhile, in the skies above, a U.S. Treasury Department plane is hijacked by a crooked federal agent that is hauling three cases full of money. I think $100 million is the, uh, the grand total. But the plane crashes during the hijack and the money is lost while they try to transfer it from the Department of Treasury plane to a getaway plane. This happens over the Rockies, so these cases of money are scattered. The ranger station, in the meantime, receives a distress call from a group of stranded climbers, quote-unquote. When they find the climbers, they discover that it's these plane robbers, and it was a ruse. So Hal and, and Gabe are taken prisoner by former military agent operative, I'm sorry, former military intelligence operative Eric Quaylen, and several mercenaries who need Gabe and Hal's help to locate the cases with the help of beacon locators that are planted within the cases. This might end up being more confusing than us <laughs> jumping all over the place. Uh, that's funny. Okay, yeah, here we go. You're, it's only been like three minutes. Come on. You know, you keep going. Okay. All right. All right. So with the help of Gabe, under threat of murder, Gabe finds the first case. During retrieving the case, the, the bad guys try to kill him. But they trigger an avalanche during which they think Gabe has died. But he hasn't, of course. It's Sylvester Stallone. What he does is he ends up emptying the case of money throughout the avalanche, so they lost that case. En route to the second case, Gabe beats Quaylen to the second one, takes all the money, teases Quaylen with a note to exchange the money for his friend Hal. So he's holding the money hostage, which he ends up burning in a fire anyway. But Gabe ends up killing a few of Quaylen's men who are hunting him and Jesse, who found her way up the mountain to meet up with Gabe somehow. 
Gabe kill some guys. Quaylen and his men kill some guys. It's some stoners. And, oh, the helicopter pilot Frank. The stoner guys. Like I guess we're, <laughs> we're going to dig into it, but we're poor casualties of this uh, ill-fated uh, plane robbery. But Gabe finds a third case full of money before Quaylen does. Hal kills one of his captors and escapes. He finds Gabe just as he kills the last henchman, but Quaylen kidnaps Jesse in the helicopter and gets away. Gabe agrees to exchange the money for Jesse, then shreds the money in a helicopter rotor. The copter crashes on the side of the mountain, but is hanging by a tow cable. Gabe and Quaylen have an epic fight on top of the hanging chopper. The chopper falls just as Gabe jumps onto the mountainside, and Quaylen is dead. Did you get all that? Well, it's a good story, and, well, I recommend it, too, I have to admit. That's right. That's beautiful. Hey. Everybody got that? Now let's talk about the specs of the film. This film came out in 1993, 26 years ago. Can you believe it's been 26 years? When did you first see this? And was it the theaters? And when's the last time you saw it before this recording? I did see this in the theaters. I was 18 years old when it came out. And I was so happy that this movie came out when it did. Because this was at a time when even me as an 18-year-old, freshly new adult in the world, I was kind of recognizing that Sly's... The star was slipping just a little bit. This was before the uh, straight-to-video years were coming up around the corner. He did the stopper, my mom will shoot. He did some of those comedy shows. <laughs> and this was a return to form, as they would say. And I remember thinking to myself as an 18-year-old that I loved the film. I bought it on VHS when it first came out. I bought the soundtrack, and we'll talk about that. Complete fan of the film at 18. Does it hold up today? We're going to talk about that. And today's money, but it cost $112 million to make if it was made today with the inflation. And didn't make, however, $273 million worldwide, which is about $160 million profit. So Where do you get your numbers from? Well, I saw that there were some discrepancies. I saw that they said on one site that it made $255 million worldwide. Yeah, that's what I found on Wikipedia. Okay, which in today's money would be about four hundred. So it made anywhere between, let's just say, between today's money between three and $400 million. So definitely a successful that's huge. Movie. Yeah, that, that's a monster. I do want to, before I, I talk about my cliffhanger history, I do just want to give a shout out to Mike Kunda who I think is still watching us live on Facebook right now. And Yo, Mike. And Mike, you're cracking me up. And if you have the ability to turn on a camera and join us, I think Ryan and Doug would both be on board for it. Chime in if you're able to do that. I can send you the invite via Facebook if you want. Easy. You yeah. Just jump right in. Cliffhanger for me, I acutely remember seeing this movie in theaters because my brother and his wife at the time went to go see Jurassic Park on opening night. And it was in the era when movies actually sold out. So we get to the theater and Jurassic Park was sold out. So we saw Cliffhanger instead, <laughs> which is a movie I would have seen eventually. That's when I saw it first theatrical run. We've covered this on the Slycast and it's a damn good Slycast episode because I listened to it recently, preparation for this. So that was probably the last time I've watched the movie. I'm just looking at the chat on Facebook under Lindsey Greenberg, who's my wife's feed. I think my son hijacked her Facebook profile. It says, it is my dad. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. I was wondering about that. I knew that was your wife's account and I was wondering, it. okay, so your son came on saying, That's my dad on TV. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. That's great, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's up, buddy? I know he's not listening, but he might be, uh, Ah, you might be listening. I don't know. To my kid at home who's supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that reminds me, Ryan, you had a great joke recently where I think it was on the Mighty Mix page. Somebody posted a, a back tattoo, and Ryan said, where's the kid? I don't see the kid. <laughs> I laughed a lot longer than I probably should have. That's like a deep cut for our Rocky fans who like you know, And I also think, Doug, you told him to stop where he is. Like, nobody needs a Tommy Gunn tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oof. No need to go any further. <laughs> I don't know if Mike heard that request. I'm just going to send him a uh, send him a message. Doug, go ahead and talk about your first time seeing the film, and uh, when was the last time you saw it before this recording? This was one of the few Stallone films that I actually did see in the theaters back in ninety whatever. I was just a kid. I was in ninety three. I was fifteen, so it would have had to have been with my parents. Or maybe they dropped us off. I don't know. Teenagers, they drop you off with your friends, right? And you go to see a, a film. Yeah, um, I've heard of such things happening. Sure. It's not that vivid of a memory, but I do remember seeing this in the theaters. It was like in the 90s action movies, man. Like, you know, you had Die Hard. Van Damme was huge at that point. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was putting out some good stuff. It was like 90s action, man, right? I always talk about 80 movies, but this stuff was right in my wheelhouse as a stupid teenage kid. After that, though, I didn't see it for a long time, a couple of years. I don't remember it being as graphic and bloody as it was when I rewatched it this past week for the podcast. But like, I loved it back then because it was like a great 90s action film. Kind of gets lost in the shuffle, right? When you talk about great action films, you don't hear a lot of people mentioning Cliffhanger. But they have made other mountain climbing action films. Is Terminal Velocity one? Terminal Velocity. Uh, when it comes to mountain climbing movies i think this is the best one yeah totally they haven't made a ton of these like that was my point like you could get better than this it's everything you can possibly want from an action film cheesy dialogue great graphic death scenes lots of lots of blood well speaking of the blood and now we're just gonna now that we've done our synopsis we can just go all over the place now we can feel free to do that i feel much better about it now yeah good good so we don't have to excuse ourselves every time we do uh, yeah, this movie is quite gory when it comes to the. It's it's surprising how gory it is. And here's someone like me, and I'm sure like you guys. I watched Game of Thrones, and I watched all these like I uh, watched um, like Spartacus and all that. But there's something really visceral about the violence in this cliffhanger movie because it's oddly like I wouldn't say it seems out of place, but it almost seems out of place. Like the gunshot violence is like mm-hmm. the exploding chest wound and the and the blood in people's mouths. I don't know how many times people had blood coming out of their mouths when they were punched and kicked. And yeah, people were punched and kicked and beaten to mm-hmm. a pulp. It's it's like a real solid violent movie this movie was originally rated nc-17 for violence oh wow i'm not surprised there is a rough cut i tried to find it on the internet it used to exist but i couldn't find it but there is a rough cut available of an nc-17 cut of the violent cliffhanger and i would love to see that because i like violence i don't it doesn't like I mean, obviously movies. The idea, like you know, like RoboCop. That's almost <clears> NC seventeen. That kind of it's so oh, brutal, yeah. but it's so good. I find it interesting. I wonder what the discussion was between Rennie Harlan, the director, and Stallone of like how violent can we? Because this was ninety three. It wasn't that common mm-hmm. to make these kind of movies. What are your thoughts? It was more common than it is today. Mm. Yeah, maybe, maybe because we're so used yeah, to the Marvel yeah. movies and stuff. And, yeah, it seems like nowadays people, even horror movies, come out with a PG-13 rating, which just 
always makes me scratch my head. So I thought the action and the violence in this movie was great. It's so good to see practical special effects. And Mike Kunda talked about like the blood bags. Um, So when somebody gets shot nowadays, you'll most movies nowadays, it'll just be like a CG. Oh, they'll put a little blood spurt. But here, like somebody actually has blood packs on their chest and somebody hit a button that detonated them. And I mean, you feel that and it really adds to the experience. And I think this movie is a very visceral movie and that violence sort of definitely helped the overall feel of the movie. And I also think it was the Rennie Harlan. It was those European sensibilities as a filmmaker. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a product of its time because you can make this exact movie today without that blood, without the, the gory violence, without the guy getting shoved up against a stalactite <laughs> that pierces through his chest. <laughs> like you can do this movie today and we'll have like all, all the, you know, the tropes of an action movie without the gore, I guess. But that was it's a product of the time, right? So you brought up a great point. We forgot to mention this. They are going to redo this film today's time. What? Yeah. With like a female lead and Jason Momoa is involved or something. Oh, Doug, you're being facetious. Yeah. Cause I, well, I did read that. I did. It was one of my notes, but, um, well, no. And I think this ties into to exactly what we're talking uh-huh. about. Cause I guarantee you the remake of, uh, I don't care about them doing remakes. I'm not one of those people who gets all hoity toity about it. Like if it's a good film, it's a good film. Like if it turns out being a good film, great. If it's all female cast, great. If it's great. I don't care if it's female, whatever gender fluid uh, or gen- fluid gender lead. I don't care mm-hmm. as long as it's a good film. But that being mm-hmm. said, I think Jason Momoa, I got a feeling he's going to probably play the bad guy. I was just thinking that same thing. At least Doug did the synopsis here, but I feel like we're going to jump all over the place. And I want to talk about the opening sequence of this yes. film. Yes, please. But I do got to say that one of the great things about this movie is the main villain, Quaylen, played by John Lithgow. It's John Lithgow and I play uh, Quaylen. He's about the baddest of the bad guys. He's the leader of the bad guys. Is such a guy that you don't think is going to match up with Stallone. And that's what makes that villain so great. And a lot of Bond villains had that sort of trait, too. And the one thing I think modern movies sort of just fail at is giving us those regular-looking villains that are still able to be a worthy adversary to our heroes. Well, let me ask you this, Craig. Did you know who was originally cast to play Quaylen? I do not, Doug. Why don't you tell me? (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that you brought that up because I want to pose this question to you. Christopher Walken was originally signed on to play Quaylen. Do you think he would have done a comparable job to Lithgow? I think so. I think it would have been a different performance. Yeah. But I think those two guys are they kind of drive in the same lane. I think it would have worked. I mean, I can I can definitely see it. I think without having the benefit of seeing Christopher Walken's take on it, mm-hmm. I think John Lithgow did the best job that anybody could have done with that character. I thought he nailed it. I really yeah. liked Lithgow in this. Walken would have definitely played it differently. He the Walken plays a great bad guy. Don't get me wrong. He wouldn't have put on a British accent for sure. He, he would have just done his New York gangster kind of routine, which totally would have worked. I mean, it's walking. You can't go wrong with him. I do like Lithgow. I think Lithgow nailed it. Also, Rennie Harlan's first choice wasn't cast, but Rennie Harlan's idea was David Bowie as Quailin, which I think would have <laughs> flopped. Yes. That would have been awful. 
I think David Bowie was like, no, I'm not spending the winter up in the Italian Alps. Find somebody else. Yeah. I'm going to hang out in my mansion in Beverly Hills with a mom. Craig, I should should respond to your initial query and maybe our listeners wondering, does this movie hold up for Ryan? and Or is he just going to crap all over it like some of the other films? I still love this film. I love this film. No worries there. When I was watching, I was watching. I was actually watching a Blu-ray transfer on my computer. It is a nice-looking film. There's mm-hmm. some really great shots, some great mountain shots, some great. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the practical shots of this film. There's some really scary stunts. There's some stunts, even with today's understanding of practical effects and stuff. There's some stunt work in this film where I'm like, where is that guy falling from? <laughs> you don't see stunts like that anymore, no. and. This is Italy, what the what the Italian Alps doubling for Colorado. And I got to say, we've already talked about Rennie Harlan's other Stallone entry, Driven. And wow. we all know what a disaster that was <laughs> and how uh, incompetent it seemed at points with CGI tires and the mm. whatnot and quarters. It almost feels like a completely different filmmaker here. This is Rennie Harlan arguably at the peak of his powers as a director giving a shit. And it shows. And yeah, I mean, this film is a film that you, you mentioned the, the high budget and there's a lot of reasons for it. All the money spent you see on the screen. I'll say this. If I have a bad word to say about it, it's that the sets feel like sets. But the on-location stuff, the cinematography is beautiful. Yes. Yeah. There's that one fight scene with Leon, which is clearly on a soundstage with a cave yeah, there's a bunch of them, man. That that's not the only one. When you're on a on a soundstage, if or even like the nighttime scene when they find the second case, that is a totally a set, and it feels like it. The yeah. bridge where Gabe faces off with Travers is a set, and it feels like it. I, I love the film, and it was fun, and I had a great time, and I'd be happy to watch this film again anytime. But seeing it now 26 years later or even 20 years removed from the last time I saw it, there's a lot of flaws in this film that became glaringly obvious just maybe over time. And like I said, I saw it in the Blu-ray transfer. So there's things that were more detailed, such as the sets were more mm-hmm. detailed. But I will say it's charming in this day and age. Mm-hmm. As bad as we think those sets might look, there was a lot of artistry involved with creating those sets. And nowadays they would put some snow on the ground mm-hmm. and put them in front of a green screen yep. and then just CGI yeah. the whole thing. That's true. It's clear when they transition to sets, but as a viewer, I at least appreciate the artistry. And we all grew up in eras where we were able to watch films for the first time before CG. A lot of times you knew that stuff was fake, but you knew that there were filmmakers involved that were making it happen. And I think that goes a long way. Craig looks like the godfather petting his kitty right now. <laughs> It's kitty. It's a puppy. I know it is, but you know oh. the Godfather had a cat. Oh, Craig, Frida wanted to come and say hi to everybody. What's up, Frida? <laughs> it's adorable. Get ready to go out for a walk. All right, Frida. There so you go. the movie right. opens. The movie opens with a, quite frankly, and like I said, I bought the soundtrack for a reason. With a beautiful score by Trevor Jones. One of my favorite mm-hmm. film composers from the 90s who also did The Last of the Mohicans. And there's some of the similar themes from The Last of the Mohicans is actually in this film. Sprawling music for sprawling mountain, mm-hmm. mountains. And it feels like a real film. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I thought the score was beautiful and it fit the film very well. It's not memorable as far as movie scores goes. Like nobody says, oh, that cliffhanger score was, you know, was one of the, one of the most famous ones. <laughs> 
<laughs> Nobody's telling Ryan any different. <laughs> I thought the sprawling music fit the sets perfectly, especially in the opening. The music and like the interaction with the characters right in the opening give you that uneasy feeling that something immediately is going to go wrong because it's too happy. There's too much joking around going on. The music is yeah. too, too epic to start a movie that you right immediately have that uneasy feeling. I love how the helicopter comes in, the sprawling music, and we see, we hear the radio chatter that there's some uh, hikers in distress. Three, Jesse, do you see him yet? Patience, my love, patience. Wait a minute, I think I have him sighted. Frank, what's the word? The word is we got him over there. Rescue 3, this is Rescue Center, over. This is 3, go ahead. Jesse, we're getting general clearance in the southeastern region of the park. You will probably have sufficient cloud base to get into the tower. But please be advised you'll still encounter some strong winds and turbulence. We would advise against a winch rescue, over. Wilco Center, I'll proceed with wire cross from opposite tower. 3 out. Center out. And there's, you know, the nice banter between, uh, what's the name of the female character? And I play the character of Jesse. Jesse. And played by Janine Turner, is that right? Yep. Shit, I had it written down. She Jean was Turner. from that show, Northern Exposure, I think. It might have been a Canadian show. Twin Peaks? No, Northern Exposure. So it must be a Canadian show. Oh. My dad used to love it. I remember he uh, he was never a big Sylvester Stallone fan when he was my age and younger. Uh, he always ah, Stallone when I was a kid. But he said, "Oh, I like kind of like Cliffhanger." He, I remember him saying because it had it had her from the, his favorite show. The shot of Michael Rooker's character Hell and his girlfriend Sarah. Sarah. Yep. So Sarah and Hell. These are the two hikers, but they're friends of Gabe, played by Stallone, and uh, uh, I already forget her name again. And I play the character of Jesse. Jesse, jeez, I gotta write that down. I'm gonna do it right now so I don't forget. So, yeah, Jesus. But yeah, yeah, thanks. Hey, look, I took a lot of notes, but I forgot to write down the characters' names. I but anyway, oh, we won't forget Gabe. That's for no, sure. No, Gabe, you can't forget Gabe. That's such a great Stallone character name. Um, Gabe Walker. Gabe yeah. Walker. The scene of Michael Rooker at who plays Hell with the uh, smoke signal. That's a great shot. Are they not really on that peak? It it looks incredibly high, and it looks inc- there's no CGI here. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, how much would it take for a helicopter to just drop them down on top of a peak for a quick shot and then pull them back up? I I don't know. It's obviously a, it's high up there. It's, I know, especially the the actors that are on the mountains. I, I mean, stuntmen off to the side because they, they do their own things but the actors that are actually out there they have to be harnessed out their ass right well i actually watched believe it or not on youtube is the 20 minute documentary of the filmmaking stallone was about 46 when he made this film and the stuntman said that he did 80 percent of those stunts that they were just on standby wait uh, who, wait who who did 80 percent of the stunts? sly 
Did Sly say that? No, the stuntman did. Oh, wow. Working with Sly has been fantastic, especially as a stunt coordinator, because he's we've put him in a lot of positions that are very dangerous. He's done most of his, I'd say 95% of his own stunts. He really does work hard, and we work him hard, but uh, he's a fitness fanatic, and he's in wonderful shape. He's out there doing it, man, and I was impressed. Am I scared? Yeah, but it's a good scare, you know. It's kind of like saying, I do. And the other thing that's remarkable about that is Stallone has a fear of heights. Yeah. What makes it so hard is, first of all, I don't like heights. <laughs> Big problem when you're doing a mountain movie called Cliffhanger. I despise them, you know, to the, to the very core of my being. But the character can't, so you literally have to psych yourself out and say, look, you are not you. When you signed on to do this, you have to be somewhat schizoid. So when we get up to the heights, um, after... An hour or so, I find myself going out to the edge, hanging one foot over the edge, and I'm saying, I'm not afraid of this. Through the character, the minute he yells, cut, I go, yo, are you crazy? The people in the audience say, you know, that, that, is that real? Is that, I mean, could that be? Nah, yes, yes. To make a mountain climbing movie um, and do the amount of physical work that he did yeah. really shows what a professional he is. I heard that this was one of his ways of getting over his fear of heights was the demanding to do a lot of the work himself. Yeah, this wasn't Sly talking out of, I know, you'd think so. But even even if he did half the stunts, whatever. But the stuntman said that he did 80%. And they also interviewed the editor. And the editor was showing the scene where Stallone is on the, the mountain. And the editor was saying, that's all Stallone. And there's many shots like that where it's what you see is what you get. On this piece of film here... This is this is this is Stallone. This is there is that is not a double. That is not that is him, and he has no safety line. This rope that you see on him is a part of the scene because he he decided to jump across this cavern, and just in case he, he, it's a part of the scene. This is not a safety line. He did that climb himself, and uh, it looks very easy, but it isn't. Number one, he's probably ten thousand feet when he did it, but he's done that's just one of, of, of many things that he's done. We have to give due respect and uh, notice to Stallone's stuntman, Wolfgang Gulich, yep. who was at the time widely regarded as one of the most daring stuntmen of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Stallone's climbing double. And ironically, he was killed in a car accident after the filming of this incredible <laughs> all of the incredible stunts in this movie that he did without harnesses and whatnot survived this, but then was killed in a car accident shortly after That's filming. That's weird. It'd be like a stunt double from Driven dying in a mountain climbing accident. <laughs> it, it really is amazing, Doug. And, right. and that was another stunt performer, not related to this movie, but Dar Robinson, who was did some tremendous, tremendous high falls in his career and developed some technology that's probably still being utilized today. And he died on the set of a movie, but after performing a stunt. And it's so amazing to think that these guys do these amazing stunts that bring them within seemingly inches of their lives. Yeah. Um, and then a, just a fluke accident can take them from us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it, we have this man's work on the screen that we can admire and remember him for. And speaking Absolutely. of stunts, let's just segue into the best stunt in the film. And one of the best <clears throat> stunts in film was the uh, personnel transfer from plane to plane where they had that guy on the cable. It's a yeah. real stunt. It's in Guinness as the most expensive stunt ever filmed. 
Yes, $1 million it costs. And they had to film it in a certain place because they wouldn't insure it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read that Stallone paid out of his own pocket for the stunt to be performed because the insurance company wouldn't yes. insure it? Okay, Doug, you're laughing when you said that. Can I just say something here? Are we... <laughs> I read it on Wikipedia. I don't no, know who writes no, these articles. No, no, but I mean, no, it, it was also in IMDb's trivia as well. Because you also made a claim, like when I said that Stallone did 80% of the stunts, you're like, does Stallone say that? Are we are we kind of like digging at him a little bit that he embellishes some stuff? Is that what we're hinting at? Or like, what do you, what do you, why would you I, laughing? I, I, I think, you? I don't know. I think I might be at that point. <laughs> That's Hollywood for you, though. <laughs> I mean, we've all heard the stories that sort of, start small and then they become sort of legendary so yeah everything you hear you have to take with a grain of salt speaking of stallone news the uh, turtle day was the other day a couple days ago national turtle day i won't say the source do not guess any names please because you both know who i'm talking about who i messaged this person and said hey what's the story behind stallone and the turtles from rocky is it true this person's response was I'm not allowed to say, or I can't hmm. say. It kind of ties in with why are we always getting these weird, like... Weird vibes, right? Yeah, it's always these weird... And I, like I said, I love Sly. He's my favorite action hero. I've watched all of his films. All the actors in the world, I follow his career the most. It doesn't make him a perfect individual. It just means mm-hmm. I've, I've enjoyed his career the most. But I just wonder how much, like he said, is embellished. Was it the same Turtles or not? You know, but this person who seems to know just kind of said, uh, nah, it might not be the Turtles. <laughs> Anyways, turtles live to be like 60, 70 from what I read. Right. Those, no, those no, brand of turtles. Nobody's questioning the, the, the ability of <laughs> turtles to age. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Maybe I'm just saying true. those turtles in that picture might not be the turtles from the film. That's all. Well, I do got to say this. Don't we see Cuff and Link in Rocky Balboa? Sure. It's the same shell pattern from part one. No, but what I'm saying is in, in Rocky Balboa, it's not the same turtles that we saw in the picture that Sly posted recently. They're much smaller turtles. Uh-oh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm so confused. There's a turtle conspiracy. Well, I'm just saying you'd think that if he really still had those turtles, he would have used them on in Rocky Balboa. You would think so. You would think so. So I'm confused. Maybe they were stunt turtles. I don't know. Maybe they were performing their um, some high-impact stunts in Rocky Balboa. All right, so Hal's girlfriend is a rookie mountain climber. They made it. They made it uh, clear that she was an inexperienced climber. But did you see how high she was? And what about Hal? What, what was Hal doing on the tower with a girl who could barely climb? That was one of my gripes about that whole thing. They make a point to say how inexperienced she was, but she climbed all the way up to the top of that spire, the tower, whatever they call it. An inexperienced mountain climber can get that high and then all of a sudden get scared. Well, she was scared, but the problem was is he had injured his leg, so he couldn't help her down. Yeah, I will say this. I'm sure we've bo- we've all been in situations where you've tagged along with people to do something and realized you got way in over your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but through sheer force of will, you've gone through it. And that's kind of my takeaway from this is she was dating a serious climber. You know, she probably went along with him a lot, and she probably had real basic climbing skills – but also the situation she was in, she sort of rose to it and pulled through. But in the end, it didn't really get her all the way to safety. 
they set up the helicopter on one side, the like the huge space between the two mountain peaks. They got this repelling. I don't know the terminology, but this line. And she gets hooked in. Hal goes first with the injured leg. He goes across. And then she's hooked and strapped in. And Gabe is telling mm-hmm. Sarah, hey, you'll be fine. <laughs> he made it. Of course he did. Of course he did. Really, there's nothing to it. He made it. Okay. I can do this. Sure you can. I'm sorry for all the trouble, really. Oh, Sarah, don't worry about it, really. Thanks. And we're still on for dinner tonight, right? Of course we are. Okay. Okay, you're ready now. That's it. Now just sit right down into it. Come on, guys, the wind's picking up. All right, Sarah, just keep your eyes on me. Now don't look, Sarah, Sarah. Look, Sarah, look at me. That's it. Right. Just start to pull. One hand after another. That's it, Sarah. You're doing great. Really great. Keep going. And just keep looking at me. Sarah, that's great. You're starting to look like a pro. Keep going. That's it. Nice and easy. Hey, Al, we're going to be out of a job soon. All right, a little more, Sarah. Hand over hand, look at me, go across, and she gets halfway across. The buckle snaps and breaks. And side note, the company that makes these this equipment uh, said in the end of the film that just FYI, this will not happen with our equipment. Yeah, they really had to make a disclaimer. But this was part of the film. Our our equipment is perfect. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, funny enough, guys, I actually just repelled two days ago here on the military base that I'm on because the recruits have to do some repel work. So I had to go up a 35-foot wall and repel down. Like Sly... I'm petrified of heights. And when I was up there, I'm not going to lie to you, I was scared. I could yeah. be all tough and bravado here. I was with the instructor up there in the rappel tower, and I was harnessed in with all this like incredible safety equipment. And I had to go lean backwards. like So you have to go backwards like a 90 degrees and walk down the wall. And I was terrified. Watching this film, I was putting myself in this girl's position of going across that ravine with that cable line. It would be terrifying. So she gets halfway through. She's hanging on to her strap. She's hanging on for dear life so she doesn't fall down to her death 5,000 feet below. I can't believe she climbed that. That's it. That's it. One, two. Sarah? Oh, God. Sarah! No! No! Okay, you're gonna be okay. Can you reach the main line? No, I can't. Don't swing. Don't swing. Gabe, can you keep the line steady? That clip's not gonna hold. Gabe, help me, please. Gabe, you have to go after her. No. Gabe, no. Well, it's coming up to get you. No. It's not right for two people. Just keep it from swinging. I'm gonna sit on my harness. Don't forget the harness. There's no time. I'm going for her. Gabe, shit. No. Then there's some confusion uh, on the other side. Sarah's boyfriend Hal is saying. I'll put my harness on and go get her. And then Gabe says, there's not enough time. I'm just going to go get her. And then there's some talk later in the film. There was too much weight on the line. I did what I thought was right. Well, you were wrong. It was your weight on the line that did it. 
There wasn't time for anything else, Hal. Oh, well, I guess we'll never know, will we? Look, Hal, it was a bad time for everybody. What the hell do you know about bad times, man? You didn't love her, and you didn't have to explain to her family. And you didn't have to look into her eyes when she was falling. Now drop it. How was Hal supposed to get across there without adding extra weight? I don't know what the problem was, why Hal was so mad about what Gabe did. Because we should say the girl fell to her death. It, Gabe was holding on to her, and he got to her. So it's nearly impossible to pull somebody up with your own arm strength. She fell to her death. What was the problem that happened? Well, I think ultimately Hal as a character had to blame somebody because he dealt with this loss. And we can only imagine what that loss feels like, especially to be as powerless as he was. And that's one of the best things about this movie is it takes the time to set up this relationship. I mean, they very easily could have made this movie. We didn't have all this backstory, this extra little 12, I think it's 12 minutes before we get to the opening credits mm -hmm. really helps drive this movie through. And I think it's really important that we had a fractured friendship that it sort of starts off this film. And I do think it's frustration on Hal's part more than anything else. And it's got to be really hard to not blame somebody. Yeah, I recognize that he was placing blame and anger on Gabe. I'm actually just confused about what the issue was, what the argument was. That was one of my main questions. Gabe put himself out there to go rescue this woman. What are the alternatives? What is the other option? What, what else could have been done? Yeah, the only thing I could gather was there was mention of weight on the line, but that doesn't make sense. And what, Hal's, he's a bigger, Michael Rooker's a bigger guy than Stallone. The, Hal would have added the same amount of weight to the line, and he still didn't have his equipment. He already took off his equipment, and mm -hmm. that's that's why Gabe said there's no time. There's no time. I'm ready to go. I'm going there now. And Hal's freaking out like, no, no, no. Well, yeah. What are you going to do? She's just going to hang there. There's no option other than to get to somehow right. get to her. So, yeah, it was kind of, I guess, it, a, a better writing could have maybe explained the, the mechanics if, of, if, the, of the equipment if, or something. If there was a second option that Gabe bypassed to risk both his and her life and then she ended up dying, I can see that being more of a, a crux in that. But I mean, that, that was the only option. That was the only option. In fact, the weight had nothing to do with it. She lost grip of the harness just as Gabe got out there. Whether or not Gabe or Hal or whoever went out there, unless they <laughs> they brought in a basket from above on another helicopter, she was going to fall anyway. She was falling. She was going to fall. No matter who went out there, no matter how much weight was on the line, she was falling. Yeah. Let's talk about how harrowing that sequence actually is. That's a really effective scene. I've seen it many times. I know that she's going to fall. Yeah. But her scream, the actress mm -hmm. who's doing this, and her panic was well acted. And when uh, Stallone or Gabe says, you're, you know, she goes, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Like That panic felt real. And when he mm -hmm. does that, you're not going to die. Please, Sorry, Gabe. You're almost there. You're almost there, Gabe. Keep going. I'm here, sir. <laughs> sir, I'm here. I'm here. Sarah, reach up and grab him. Reach up. Sarah, reach up. Come on, honey. Use your other hand. Reach up. Reach up now. Reach up. Hold on, hold on. I got you. I got you. I got you. 
some incredible acting i felt stressed out watching i don't know how you guys felt but it's a very harrowing scene and then when you get the wide shot where you actually see the fall that a stunt performer did yeah it's, where's this person falling to that's too much of a free fall I, I think on the slidecast we talked about she was somehow tethered to something just remarkable i mean it really is a tense scene and i don't know if you guys remember the Ace Ventura Pet Detective yeah. sequel, uh-huh. it parodies this whole opening sequence, <laughs> which kind of shows how much of an impact it had and, and also the fact that it was parodied for another movie. This opening really, really solidifies what happens in the rest of the movie. I think it adds so much weight to the film. And and also people talked about this when they responded to us when we got listener feedback on Cliffhanger. Nobody was used to seeing... Stallone not save people Mm, and that was a legitimate shock for people because you watch this movie not knowing anything the first time you assume he's going to save the day and then he doesn't Mm -hmm. and that really really shook a lot of people and it puts you off balance for the rest of the movie yeah it's great it was parodied for comedy in Ace Ventura and also Spy Hard from what I found I don't remember that scene but like you said Craig it shows you how much of a classic scene this is i'll tell you knowing what's going to happen i'm watching it i'm still on the edge of my seat saying oh my god (laughs) i can't believe what's about to happen even though you know it's going to happen right Uh, it's a great sequence it's a harrowing death sequence that happens in the first 10 minutes of the film and it really sets the mood of the film the and again there's a lot of shots in this film of cliffs and boy this movie's called cliffhanger and it really there's a lot of like scary height shots. I mean, the, the actors and the stunt doubles really put themselves out there to provide a very thrilling, not too crazy action movie. Mm-hmm. She falls, and then 
basically goes to cuts to eight months later, which I thought was great that they did it in eight months later because this is something they should have done for Rocky five. I don't uh, know why they didn't. Said, the one thing Rocky was missing. Huh? Like, I don't understand. How, it's so easy. Just, oh, the time jump. Eight months have passed. And we can assume when Gabe shows up to go back to, um, now here's the thing. They weren't clear. Were they husband and wife? Were they boyfriend and girlfriend? Were they fiancés? Because Stallone's character, Gabe, he actually had a ring on his wedding finger there. Hmm. I read that in, in uh, the goofs on IMDb. Oh, okay. Like he, he has a ring on his wedding finger, but they weren't married. Was he married in that time, in real life? <laughs> That's a good question. On the on the Slycast episode, Mike referenced that ring, I believe, a green ring or something. And Mike yeah. referenced that Stallone was wearing that a lot at the time, and you can actually see it in other movies as well. Okay, interesting. Okay. But in the film, I know in, uh, Wikipedia said they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but the way they were even talking is like, he's it, coming it back. It wasn't a stuff. casual relationship, right? No, I mean, they were there. Yeah, they were definitely in a committed relationship. It's interesting, though, how he hasn't spoken to her in eight months. That's a. Uh, <sighs> yeah, like what happens after the funeral? He disappears, and that's it. Guys, do you want this to be a two hour and 20 minute movie like Driven? Oh no! Oh, oh wait, you no, mean, I'm, mean, I'm perfectly happy. Yeah, too much exposition. Oh, you're right. You're right. No, like the eight month time jump is perfect. Here's the thing about this film. This film was an hour with the credits, an hour and fifty two minutes. But I was not bored at all. Mm. Every scene was fun. Everything was good. Even the parts like, like the action didn't start until like. Other than like, if you could call the death scene and an, uh, an action sequence, it's really not. The first case that Gabe goes to collect for the terrorist, that's actually the first real piece of action that we see. Like, as far as the gunfire and avalanche comes down. and Well, and that's what makes the opening scene doubly effective because it does two things. It sets the tone right out of the gate, but it also gives us an action scene because we're not going to get another one for a long time. I also do want to... Uh, Shout out right now to uh, Mike Valverde, who is yeah. pretty active on our Facebook Live right now. And I'm catching the comments every once in a while and uh, appreciate you watching this live. It feels good to know there's people there on the other end. <laughs> yeah, thanks, totally. Mike Valverde. He's, yeah, he's doing great. And again, uh, Sean Malloy of the I Must Break This Podcast podcast that's all about Dolph Lundgren. He said the cliffhanger is notable because it's the film that brought Sly back to the action genre after a string of... I'm going to add failed comedies. Oh, did we yeah. do one of those already? Stop or my mom will shoot. <laughs> hey, no kidding. And we still, we still haven't done uh, Oscar yet. Maybe we can do that next. We took it out of the fans' hands, so it's not. Yeah, I was going to say only if we let the fans have a say in it. <laughs> yeah, we should let the, our listeners know that we did not put this this episode up for a vote because we were tired of covering dumpster fires. So this is this is a much more enjoyable experience to both watch and talk about than uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot or Driven. Driven has to be the worst movie we've ever covered. <laughs> I love how you melted down over Driven. It's one of my favorite moments in yeah. Stallone land. And which is crazy because both Stallone and Rennie Harlan, the director, worked here on Cliffhanger. The, the, yeah. the, the fact that they could do this film and then just... Two sides of the coin. See what happens when you get yeah. the shit. I don't want to get into the, the whole writing argument because, I mean, Stallone wasn't the principal screenwriter on this, right? It was a mountain climber who pitched this idea. Uh, and then a couple years later... He saw that this movie was in development and went, hey, that's the story I pitched. And they said, oh, here's a bunch of money. And then another uh -huh. screenwriter had taken a pass at it and 
from everything I've been able to find out, and Ryan, this might have changed since I did my research for Cliffhanger, but this is a script that Sloan got and then reworked. Yeah, so it was an idea or premise by, I don't have the name written down, but like you're saying, a premise by somebody else. And then a couple of lawyers came in and said, look, this guy brought this up before. And the other individual who's got the screenplay credit stole it. But the movie studio just basically said, look, we'll give him a writing credit and money, like an almost like an out-of-court settlement. And the other guy that pretty much stole the premise still gets credit for the film for a story. And then and Stallone gets a screenplay. So he probably did, obviously, the action sequences stuff and dialogue and choreography. I, and I think, if I may, and I'm going to make your editing job a lot harder, Ryan, because I know you like to drop in sound bites here. Love to. <laughs> but- I, I want to say that most of the cheesy 90s dialogue is credited to Stallone because it is amazing. When he's talking to Jesse in front of the cabin, there's a ton of it. There's a ton of uh, great dialogue. How about when she says, when he says, you don't understand. She says, I don't know whether to hate you or love you, but I understand you. Just a lot of things fell apart on that ledge. I know. But I don't think you know how much. Why can't you just believe you did everything you could? Did I? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have gone out on that line. Maybe I panicked. I don't know. I was there, remember? You were the only one who didn't panic. So why don't you do us a favor and quit hoarding all the guilt? You held on as long as you could. And what about Hal? What, what was Hal doing on the tower with a girl who could barely climb? Look, I can't blame Hal for anything, Jesse. It was me. All me. Well, give it up, Gabe. Because let me tell you something, it doesn't get any better. Does it get any better? <laughs> I really don't think you understand. What? I don't think you understand. I don't understand? I think I'm the only one that understands. Believe me, there were times when I didn't know what I wanted to do more, hate you or love you. But one thing I did know, and I still do know, is I understand you. <laughs> yeah, there was some really bad... Yeah, I'll insert that little uh, lover's quarrel, because that argument was so weird. It was a very weird... I argument. know, it was. It was. I wrote down a bunch. A it bunch was beautifully of like, shot, mind you. Uh, it was beautiful scenery, uh, but the the dialogue yeah. didn't make sense. It was kind of a weird argument. But Quaylen, I want to say this about John Lithgow's character. Speaking of that cheesy one, his whole dialogue is one-liners. Everything he says is a one-liner. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine communicating with this guy? Everything oh, he's, it's like, okay, dude, I know you're the bad guy, but why does every line have to be the one-liner? Every line, and they're all great. You, you never get a normal conversation out. Of him. He's such a bad guy that everything that he says has some some uh, venom behind it. Did we lose Craig again? Did we? Look, he's got that he's, frozen face again. <laughs> is there? No, he's just. <laughs> is no, there I'm, here. I'm here. I'm <laughs> here. Uh, the plane crash. Dude, we kind of just glanced over the uh, the stunt from Simon Crane. He the one in the, mm. the individual Simon Crane who did that one alone stunt. It was actually credited in the film, which was weird. You don't ever see that in films where. In the credits, they actually specifically say this one stunt was performed by this individual, and that was Simon Crane, who went from plane to plane in that opening sequence, and that was just an, him shimmying down that line to the uh, plane to plane. Uh, he had no safety equipment, by the way. Safety equipment, no camera trickery. 
Yeah. Unless the information has changed, he was paid a million dollars to do that stunt. No, oh, you'd have to pay me a lot more. I'd die. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Well, was, the funny was, thing about that stunt is we're supposed to believe that it was done by uh, Richard Travers, the U.S. Uh, Secretary agent played by Rex Lynn. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Got to see. What, what is this guy? I've seen this guy in a, in a million things, but. Oh, he's great. He is pitch perfect casting. But that big hand broom mustache. <laughs> Yeah, oh, oh, the guy that played Travers, he's great. He's great yeah. in this film. In fact, he's almost comparable to John Lithgow. I love how they hate each other. That was a great little – that's great writing, actually. Now, but oh. give credit, maybe give credit to Sly for that, for that the two bad guys hating each other. That's clever. Yeah. That's clever in it's, its own right that they hated each other too. Yeah. It's like a three-way kind of just – just spewing hatred oh, at one another. It just occurred to me. Uh, Gabe and Hal, they hated each other. But they made mm-hmm. amends, but they're the good guys. And then even the bad guys hate each other. So there's this weird relationship issues amongst both the good and the bad people. All right, Very one more cool. comment about that stunt. It was performed 14,000 feet in the air. The guy traverses a line from one plane to another. It is incredible. A million dollars really doesn't scratch the surface of what that guy deserves. In that sequence, there was that good FBI agent who was there along for the ride. He give this guy credit. This guy in a shirt and tie, he with his mm-hmm. uh, machine gun taking down the enemy plane. He's the one that actually made all this possible. He went like full Rambo style there outside the one plane before he got blown up. But he like almost single handedly took out all the bad guys with his uh, semi automatic yeah. rifle from like two hundred feet away in the air. And did he not have that bad guy look? If you've never seen this movie and you're expecting somebody to hijack a plane, you're thinking it's that guy, right? Yeah. Just because of his look. Yeah. Right? So credit to that guy, the young sung hero there that without him interfering, those cases would have made it to the plane and the bad guys would have gotten away. But he actually interfered enough that allowed or made the bad guys go back to look for the cases. Speaking of course, I'm out because our homie did not make it. Yeah, he died. <laughs> well, speaking, he died with the plane. Speaking of the cases, each of each of them had a GPS tracker on them, and there was a sequence in the movie where Gabe and Jesse they're going for the case, one of the cases. They find the case without a GPS before the bad mm-hmm. guys who had a head start with the GPS found it. There's a lot of like time jump issues in this movie where. People end up in spaces before the other person. I know it's, it pushes the plot, but there's like Jesse, for example, she's in the cabin that mm-hmm. Gabe's character is going to, but she left way before he left for that same cabin. As far as the trackers, I guess we're supposed to believe that when they showed him the original locations, mm-hmm. he memorized them yeah, because sure. he knows those mountains so well. That's what I thought you'd say, and that's what I thought. But at the same time, it's, there, it's a briefcase in the snow. That was my takeaway too, Doug. I, that's the only explanation. That's I what I was thinking. And he's really, a master tracker. He's a master yeah, tracker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did like the plane crash, though. That we're talking about the practical effects, even though it wasn't CGI. I, I kind of get a kick out of practical effects. I don't know why. It's kind of fun to watch the mini models. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's a lot easier to appreciate the artistry of practical effects than even when you're watching it. You know that it's to miniature. But that miniature is actually crashing into little miniature trees. Whereas nowadays when we watch a movie, our eyes see it and our brain processes it, but we know it's fake. We know there's nothing real 
about that moment. And I think that's what makes practical effects work so much, even when you can see it's a little model. Agreed. Well, let's talk about some of the things that didn't work. What didn't work for me in this film was there's two bad guys in particular that I, I hated since day one, and I hate just as much today. John Lithgow. better not be the striker. Number one, I love John Lithgow and Travers. They were great bad guys. Well cast, well acted, great dialogue. But the kicker, the striker, it was so annoying. He was a great striker. Oh. He was a bloody good striker. Tell me. You like soccer? It's a great sport. I was a f-ing good striker. In an Yo! I you swearing now. That's a penalty kick. Run sportman like. I love you, no chip shot. He dribbles past one defender, two defenders, three defenders. Striker lines up at the penalty spot. He focuses on the ball. The crowd is on his feet. Striker moves to his left. He draws back his foot. He comes in. This guy's beating up Michael Rooker's character, Hell, and he's dialoguing playing soccer and he's using hell as a soccer ball about to kick him off the cliff granted it's a great death scene that uh, hell gave him you know you know when he yells out seasons over and the shotgun and the chest over the cliff that's a great sequence seasons over, it's the guy's only scene and he's <laughs> narrating you know beating the crap out of rooker out of hell like a commentary in the soccer game, mm-hmm. but it's, I don't know. It's so forced. Mm-hmm. All of it. Like he's lining up his kick. Everything is just disjointed. It, I hated that moment. I hated oh, that so guy. Who else bothered you or Ryan before I get into my comments? I it. know exactly who he's talking about. <laughs> okay. You know, this is interesting because before I get into this guy, well, I'll just say from memory, cause I, I forget his name, but he played, I think his name is his name is Leon in real life. So he's a one name, like a one word name in real life. Like he's credited as Leon. Leon. Yeah, he played the uh, statue that comes to life in uh, Madonna's "Like a Prayer" video. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> okay, his character and his dialogue and his behavior in this film, I've just I I found he's so I don't know what the word is, but it's just like. Annoying is not a strong enough word. Like I was just like over I, the top. It's yeah. It's it's a really terrible bad guy, and his acting is horrible. And apparently the producers loved him. That he got hired right away off of, uh, on his first audition. And when he was coming off of Madonna's "Like a Prayer," man, that he's a hot commodity. Uh, he's in Oz. That's what I've seen him in. Oh, I'm not seeing it very well. I just did not like him. And I, I when he got skewered by the uh, overhanging stone pinnacle or stalagmite i don't remember yeah. which what, what are you guys' thoughts on him do you, do you like him as a bad guy i like the bad guys overall mainly because you don't tend to see a diverse group of bad guys anymore mm-hmm. it feels like nowadays the uh casting directors just put out a call for like male models between the age of 20 and 25 and they're all interchangeable and you can't keep track of who's who 
And in this movie, I really appreciated the fact that all of the villains were their own unique people and came from different backgrounds and really felt like mercenaries. Whether or not I liked the individual character or not, I really appreciated what a ragtag group they sort of put together. And for me, it helped add to the the realism of the group. That's my only complaints about the Everyone else did a great job. Everyone else did a great job. If I was a casting director, which I'm not, those two would not have made the cut. I don't think I would have seen whatever they thought they saw. I would have liked it more if they would have fleshed one of these guys out more. They were great bad guys. In Die Hard, you had Carl, the long-haired, I can't remember the guy's name, but you had Carl. Everybody knew who the bad guy Carl was. He was the henchman. He was he was the right-hand man to Hans Gruber. They should have really made this guy Quaylen's right-hand man, and I would have believed his psychosis a lot more if he was just right off the bat, he was the ruthless guy. He was the insane psychopath. But all of a sudden, like he comes out of nowhere, he shoots the base jumper without any problem. And then now all of a sudden he's like, I'm coming after you, Gabe. I'm coming after you, Walker. And he's all misogynistic. <laughs> Talks about his bitch. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. Disgusting. His behavior was disgusting. Because that's right. He's, he's telling Gabe that he's going to rape the girl before he kills her. Like, like, this guy is just off. Anyways, he was just like psycho. It amazes me in this day and age when a man for money for the personal safety of himself and his bitch. At least you can go to your grave knowing that I'm going to treat the bitch. Right! He's just too psycho for the rest of what was going on around him. But yeah. that's, it's fine. You can have a guy that's that psycho, but make him that psycho right from the beginning. Right. Don't just like pop him up all of a sudden as like a psychopath. Because then you're like, all right, where did this guy come from? He was, he was a background guy before that. Nobody knew his name or anything. Now all of a sudden he's coming with his martial arts. Like he could have displayed that throughout the whole movie. Yes, yeah, right. That guy was a fantastic fighter. It comes out of nowhere just with these martial art kicks. Yeah. Going back to the first suitcase retrieval scene, why did they try to pull Gabe off the cliff before he brought the suitcase down? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's one of the more head-scratching moments from this film because they basically say they're going to kill Gabe when he comes down, and then Hal has that moment where he, he wants to warn him. But it doesn't feel like anybody thought too much beyond that because if you pull him down, the money's coming down with him, and then you lose – a whole case, right? Unless they thought they'd catch it. Did they think it was in his hands? <laughs> I don't know why pull him down. The case had not been brought down, and for all they knew, he hadn't found it yet. It feels like they needed this moment to sort of get the story to where it needed to be, but they didn't really think about too much how to do it, so instead, they just did it. <laughs> right. I mean, it creates the action sequence. It creates what it creates later, but I love that. avalanche, which yeah, takes great. that one yeah, it's it's an amazing, an- another great sequence. They get to the one suitcase before the bad guys, Jesse and Gabe, and they set up that snowman with the tracker eyes, the tracker beeping eyes, mm-hmm. and they open up the case, and it says, uh, what did it say again? Want to trade or something like that? So, something about trading, because he wanted to trade the suitcase for Hal. What did that remind you of that sequence? Any guesses? 
So Gabe and Jesse get to the suitcase first. They empty out the money and they leave one dollar mm-hmm. bill in there, saying, "You know, you want to trade because we have the cash. We'll give you the cash for." Now I have a machine gun. Oh, ho, yeah, ho, yeah, ho. Totally. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. <laughs> that's what came to mind, and I never thought of it till I saw it today. Of that well, sequence. You, did, you at least thought of this as Die Hard on a Mountain, right? Give a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yeah. This totally. movie wouldn't exist without Die Hard. We this is like the third time we mentioned Die Hard, by the way. We should, well, we should mention that they did want to do a sequel to this movie. And it was going to – this is where we'll give a, a little shout-out to Matt, who's not watching our show, <laughs> which is weird. He said that um, – It's late. It's late where you guys are. Yeah, but I'm doing the show. You know, it's Saturday night. Come on. <laughs> you bastard. This is the time I always do the show. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm on Doug's time zone now, which I will be for for a little while. So I better get used to it. Yeah, I'm right. Yeah, all right. Hush you. Sequel. Yeah, so they're gonna do a sequel with uh, the Gabe character at a dam. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was gonna be called the Dam, like Cliffhanger Two, the, the Dam. dam. And it was literally gonna be terrorists at a dam. Hoover Dam. Anyways, but then Matt said there was like parts three and four. I, I couldn't find any information. And a, and a prequel, I think. All right. So, <sighs> All right, so what's uh, <laughs> Matt? Somewhere Matt's head is exploding. <laughs> so we talked about the oh, the Leon death scene. Talk about the poor old man Frank death scene. It- oh my goodness, that is a sequence and a character. They didn't need to do it, and they did it. <laughs> and it really just drives home how sinister and evil these guys are. That's a great way of putting it because. Because he was such an innocent old man. There was like – so there was two uh, smoke potting, surfer, uh, snowboarding dudes, base jumping dudes. One got killed. One got murdered. The other one barely got away. Frank gets murdered. Uh, Quaylen murders his female bad guy when he says, no, you know what's uh, – what do you say? The greatest thing about love or something or – What are you doing here, right? Do you know what real love is, Crystal? There's a lot of just like violent deaths of innocent people. It's like a slasher film in some ways. Like, oh, people, a blatant disregard for human life. There you yeah. go. Like this old man gets shot. Like he's just standing there. And it's filmed so well because – and it's acted so well by this older gentleman. I forget his name, but he's his special appearance by Paul Winfield. No, not, not Paul Winfield. Oh, that was the uh, other Ralph guy. Ralph Wade. Ralph Waite. Yeah. He's an older actor, and he played it so well. When he had the gun pointed at him, it was acted so well. His disbelief is like, I'm here to help you. What are you doing? What's happening here? Where's the rest of the group? Welcome. What are you doing? Now back off. Well, I came here to help you. It was so heartbreaking. I, I, every time I watch that scene, I'm literally heartbroken. <laughs> it's again, it's one of those '90s things. It's the guy's collateral damage. Like you talk about Game of Thrones and how they just murdered characters left and right. This movie took no prisoners. They just killed people, innocent or not. I kind of have a, a little issue with that oh, sure. because, like, as cold-blooded as a killer as one can be in these movies, I don't believe there's anybody that cold-blooded that they'll kill everybody or anybody regardless of 
Well, they did here. Uh, yeah, I know it's, but you know, I of course for a movie like this, you you suspend that, but it did. It broke my heart to see it, and you know, I knew it was going to happen the second he showed up. I said, "This get this poor son of a bitch is dead." <laughs> yeah, and then there was the uh, let's talk about that bridge explosion sequence. That's actually really well filmed. I remember the trailers. I've seen that in the trailers as a teenager looking forward to seeing it in the theaters. And it didn't disappoint with the explosion behind Gabe. He's running. I didn't notice this until I saw it on the Blu-ray. So the explosion is on your left, but it's a big widescreen shot. And you can see the stunt double, or Gabe's character, grabbing the bridge on the right uh, with Jesse grabbing him as well. It's such a wide shot that I I think all these years I was always focusing on the explosion on the left and on the right screen was stuff going on. There's a lot of wide, wide shots of a lot going on. People walking across mountaintops, a lot of vistas, and just the stunts themselves. There's a lot of wide shot stunts and faraway shots. I, I love the cinematography in this film. It's quite possible, Ryan, that for a couple of viewings of this film, you watched it on standard 4.3 VHS, which Blu-ray and DVD thankfully bought widescreen back-to-home viewing, but Mm. for a long time, this was people were probably watching a a cropped version of this film, which really takes a lot away from it. I think that might have been what it is, is that a lot of things are cropped. Can we talk about the one sequence that was just, it looks so freaking cool, but is probably one of the most unrealistic sequences in the whole film, where Gabe jumps that cliff and he goes about 40 oh. feet. <laughs> it looks That's so ridiculous. cool. It's, I know. It does. It's a total like trailer moment. This is the moment that you're going to show to end the trailer. Yes. In fact, in fact, wasn't it called back? and reshot because um, even test audiences thought it was bullcrap? Yeah, well, that's what I read, too. The test audiences laughed. So how far did he jump in the original <laughs> cut? A hundred feet. I don't know. But it was awesome, though. Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, we talk about 1993 audiences maybe being a little bit more sensible, thinking that's too much. Whereas I think it would, ironically, a pun not intended, it would fly... It, better in today's audience of all these Marvel movies and stuff that we watch. And well, not even that. You had the Skyscraper movie with The Rock, you know, even some of the Die Hard sequels that came after yeah. this where people just do superhuman shit now and audiences just accept it. Exactly. So I <laughs> think... Superheroes. So funny enough, I think that's why this sequence today when I watched it, it was really cool. And I love... I actually went back and uh, did a screenshot and I'll release it when we release the video because I love that shot of his... that stunt double whoever's doing that jump in the air so where are they jumping in real life where are they jumping off of because there's no cgi taking out a water like what are they how are they propelling themselves it's actually a really cool shot I, i'm actually confused how they pulled it off in real life do you guys know i, I do know that a lot of this movie especially i probably on this on the special features you probably see some of this but a lot of stuff they did where the way it's photographed it looks like it's straight down but then when you look at it in real life, they were sort of, you know, on one cliff above another cliff. And it's just through the magic of filmmaking and, and trick shots or whatever. You know, they're doing stuff at a certain height, but it was a, a really small couple feet down if if you didn't make the jump. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I got you. I got you. But that's a really cool shot. And this, the thing about this film is 
how gr- <laughs> this is another excuse the pun how grounded it actually is in a lot of his action sequences it's actually quite as far as an action movie goes it's not totally out of this realm of possibilities it's not like a james bond movie this is a kind of a grounded movie and there's only a couple little sequences where maybe the explosion was a little bit big or whatever but you know people jump in the air or fly them off cliffs and i mean you you've seen youtube videos people are doing this kind of stuff yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm a, a big James Bond fan. It's it probably one of my favorite film franchises. And around this same time, maybe two years later, we got Goldeneye, which I believe the, the writer of this film um, wrote that as well, Michael France. And we get that great scene in, in Goldeneye where he jumps uh, off the cliff on the motorcycle and sort of uh, works his way down into a plane mm. and... <laughs> <laughs> and coat goes through the door. I love that. I love that shit. And and in Bond movies, you accept it because he's Bond. I love this movie. <laughs> well, I love this movie, and, and and like there's some flaws in it. But I mean, even when I was watching this, because I like I said, I saw it, I used to own it in VHS when I was a teenager, and I used to rewatch movies all the time when I was younger because there's no YouTube, Netflix, and stuff. So I used to watch my movies over and over again back in the day. This movie, I will say, 26 years old, it has aged very well, and the nostalgia factor has not been killed. Some of the set sequences, yes, they look like stages and stuff like that, but it's, it's quaint, and I like it. And I, uh, other than forgetting just how violent it is and really how much cursing there is in this movie, too, I, I was a little taken aback about the profanity level in this film. But maybe that was a 90s scene, because we don't hear that kind of, unless it's a Quentin Tarantino film, we don't really hear the kind of profanity in action films like we do now. No, they chased the PG-13 rating, which we talked about earlier. But I do have to say, Ryan, that I'm glad this movie held up for you. And I say this without any kind of hyperbole, but this is probably Stallone's best action movie Hmm. from a pure action standpoint. And you can argue to varying degrees how much you consider Rambo action movies. They're action movies, but there aren't huge stunts in them per se okay so take, uh, but away, I take away the rocky and the expendable films you're yeah. saying well i'm, I'm saying I you mean, put cliffhanger, cliffhanger i think if you really search your heart you'll find it to be true that cliffhanger <laughs> is the most pure action film in terms of delivering on the promise of an action film I like it. I think when it comes down to, uh, you, I meant to say the Rambo films. You take away the Rambo, Rambo films because we say action because there's so much gunfire and fighting, whatever. But yeah, for a standalone film in Stallone's career, that's a good question. Is there a better standalone action film than this one well, that he's done? Well, I'll argue too that it's easy to fire a gun in a movie, and and I love the Rambo movies. We talked about that already. I'll argue anybody on it, and I can't really read Doug's face right now whether he agrees with us or not. <laughs> I would have to totally agree. Using Ryan's own words, we've reviewed a couple of dumpster fires before this, but this I really enjoyed rewatching Cliffhanger. The action totally holds up. The effects holds up. Even though like I was talking earlier about the obvious sets, the on-location shots were incredible. The explosions, everything, like the action was incredible. Like I really, I was invested, totally invested in in the movie from beginning to end. Even the cheesy 90s dialogue, like I was laughing throughout the movie at how stupid it was. We didn't really talk about things like when Gabe is lighting the fire uh, the money on fire to keep warm in the cave. It's like, boy, it's expensive to heat uh, yeah, this place. Point. <laughs> Cost a fortune to heat this place. 
bad humor right now. <laughs> well, the, the Gabe Kinnett fight had some had like some incredible stuff. Like your your life is on. What did you say? Like your life is on sale, Walker. The price is thirty million. But I think my favorite one was at the end when uh, Quaylen on the radio. He goes, "I must admit to Gabe, you're a real piece of work." <laughs> and Gabe goes, "And I must admit, you're a real piece of shit." I must admit, you're a real piece of work. Yeah, and I must admit, you're a real piece of shit. Yeah, there's some great, there's some great one-liners like that. Uh, there was actually one sequence um, that was really quiet to hear in the audio, and I don't even think I'll do an audio drop. Maybe I will, but when Hal goes to try to warn Frank that he's about to be killed, the bad guys like Quaylen and Travers, they let Hal go in a sadistic way, like go, go ahead and try to stop it. It's not you're too far away. Uh. Frank's gonna get killed, and. So Hal's running to stop Frank, but before they let him go, or when they let him go, you can hear Quaylen kind of say, "Go warn Frank. Uh, go warn your buddy. Go warn him. Like good luck." It was a really like another little sadistic moment there by Quaylen. Like they were really sadistic bad guys. Yeah, they were perfect bad guys for the time. A lot of great one-liners like, "Oh, you really want to kill me, don't you? Well, take a number and get in line." You want to kill me, don't you, Tucker? Take a number and get in line. Like this is great, little, so yeah. I, what I'm about gonna, at the end? Remember, shithead, keep your arms and legs in the vehicle at all times. Remember, shithead, keep your arms and legs in the vehicle at all. Look at that! So we're just rattling them off right now. <laughs> the helicopter, now. I know. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all coming back to me. Yeah, there's some great stuff. Uh, there's some great lines. Um, yeah, and they're usually fed by Quaylen. or when uh, Hell says to the soccer player bad guy, he goes. Hey, Delmar, from me to you, you're an asshole. Yeah, and you're a lad, man, punk slag. He's about to die. Maybe. But in a minute, I'll be dead. You will always be an asshole. So go ahead and shoot him. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't make them like this anymore, and, and I'm not saying that with any hint of nostalgia or anything like that. It's just a it's just a fact. We're in a place where they just don't make them like this anymore. Where wow. you don't get the language or the violence, or even the uh, the cast of characters. And I'm I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just they don't make them like this anymore. So when you see a movie like this, you you really appreciate it for what it delivers. I think the, what we're getting the closest to this is maybe movies like John Wick with the violence and the cursing and movies. And, the, and they are very popular. They're doing a fourth one. And uh, the, the Kingsman, that's also a violent and cuss filled. So they are coming back, but this was the norm back in the nineties. And I kind of, I kind of missed that when you rented a video from Blockbuster and you knew that you're in for a bloody violent movie by Stallone or, Schwarzenegger, like Total Recall or something like that. Oh, yeah, and, and I agree with you, Ryan, but it, it also, also with the stunts and the explosions, it kind of feels like Michael Bay might have been kind of an explosion guy. I know mm-hmm. one of the Transformers has like the biggest explosion ever, but it feels like, and I don't want to sound like I'm down on him or anything because I enjoy going to movies now too, but action scenes in movies now don't feel exciting because it just looks like you're watching a video game. Yes, yeah, CGI has killed. That's what that's what made this movie so much fun was this, the practical effects. You felt I felt in fear of the actors and the stunt doubles. It felt visceral and real. Yeah, I yeah. miss that. They don't make them like this anymore. They just don't. And 
cliffhanger, it stands the test of time. This was one of the good ones. It was. <laughs> it's an unsung hero because when you talk about the great action comedies, they don't mention cliffhanger that much. No, they don't. You know, but then when people bring it up, they, you often hear from anyone. Oh yeah, yeah, I like that movie. It was good. So, yeah. so guys, any last words before we close the show? Love you it. Know, feels good to uh, end an episode on a positive note. <laughs> and not be angry at the movie we just watched and angry at each other <laughs> and angry at the listeners. <laughs> was the last one we did driven? No, we did uh, over the top. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was probably a mistake for you, Ryan. No, this was great. This felt great. This reminded me of why I love Stallone films. We could do another non-dumpster fire to keep that spirit alive, but we'll, we'll put up the vote maybe for the next round. We'll see what we put out there. But I just want to remind our listeners, thanks for our couple of the viewers that stay through this whole live viewing to our future listeners on our respective channels my channel is going the distance the rocket series podcast uh, just google that you can find us on every podcast app out there we're on twitter we're on facebook and also i do another podcast called the worst of the best podcast and again just google the worst of the best podcast we're on twitter and facebook all right slycast and rumors of its demise have been greatly exaggerated yeah. There's lots of great new Slycast content coming down the pike for you, including all of our, our old favorite co-hosts and some familiar voices as well. So I know it's few and far between. It's a lot of work, and I appreciate the amount of work that Ryan puts into this podcast for everybody to enjoy. And it's not easy to podcast, and uh, I'm not saying that you make you feel sorry for us. We do this because we love it, but it's also a lot of work, and when you've got jobs and family commitments there's only so many hours in a day i really appreciate the effort you put into this ryan because it's really easy for me to hang up this call and go eat dinner after we're done but uh, over the next couple of days or weeks or whatever you're going to be slaving away listening to this audio and cleaning it up and dropping in sound bites and it takes time and it's not easy i do look forward to sharing more slycast as we talked about earlier check out some of my other podcasts that have archived episodes big screen book club we did two episodes on die hard and die hard 2 both based on novels those are some of my favorite episodes ironically enough those were co-hosted by my friend bj who does rock and or roll podcast which where which is where you can find my cj ramon interview there's a lot of great content out there you have probably haven't heard list uh, lately and if you haven't listened to it in a while go back and listen to the slycast episode of cliffhanger because uh, there's some great insight from uh, Jeff Hewlett and Mike Kunda on that episode, along with a lot of redundant talking points from myself. So uh, this is great. I, I love getting together with you guys on a monthly basis, and it's really cool to be able to sit down and chat these movies. And, and like I said, Slycast, we've got a lot more content headed your way. I would also like to give Ryan his due respect for the hard work that he puts into quick turnaround on these episodes. It's it's incredible. I don't even put Rocky Minute out as quick as he puts these out. And we're a daily <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Rocky Minute is, is my show. Uh, me and my co-host, Jay, we review the Rocky movies one minute of movie time at a time. We've done two full seasons. We're uh, getting ready for Rocky 3 coming up. So uh, we're part of the Doing Genre Network. So come find us on DoingGenre.com. We've had Ryan and Craig both as guests on both seasons and you know you can look forward to more of them on Rocky 3 it's uh it's just getting better and better each yeah. season <laughs> don't give that man a podcast give me- <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awesome, guys. So, yeah, thanks for everyone that's listened. And remember, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, just thanks for listening, guys. And, yeah, this has been great as always. I look forward to our next review. And I got a feeling it's going to be a dumpster fire. So I've really enjoyed this one. <laughs> Not if we put up a, 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 you know, a choice of two great movies. That's Let's true. go back to the wall. Let's go back. Let's go way back to uh, Stallone's roots. Yeah, he's putting out good stuff. We'll do an early one. I think I think an early one from the seventies might be might be what we need to do. All right, guys. All right. Thanks for thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, everyone. Take so care. long. All right. Right on, guys. <laughs>